Hi, and welcome to this month's Dharma Things, your bite-sized podcast of exciting, inspiring, wisdom-filled conversations with people from all around the world with beautiful projects and exciting lives and interesting stories. Hopefully you'll find something inspirational and something maybe joyous from this conversation. This month joining me is Dr. Lee Watson of the Fierce Calm Organization. Uh, Hi, Lee. Hi, Miss. Great to finally meet you. (laughs) How are you? I'm good. I'm slightly daunted by the words wisdom filled. I'm thinking, (laughs) have I come to the right place? Is she talking about me? (laughs) Well, you are a doctor. Yeah. Yeah. Of philosophy, so not really, not really that useful. In a, We're all about in the philosophy crisis. here. We're all about the philosophy. Um, you are our first doctor. Really? Yeah, I don't think we've had a doctor on the on the thing before. Well, if there is a philosophy crisis, then you know who to ring. But <laughs> not not any other kind of emergency, unfortunately. So you, your doctor hat is a quite different hat to the hat that I met you under. You're a you have a background in humanities and cultural studies, is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And in journalism, which I guess is, is what got me into starting Fierce Calm in the first place. Because Fierce Calm started with an idea on pulling together the Yonaku community to do some good, essentially, as a community, collectively. And one of the ways we, we I started to connect with people and meet people was just by sharing stories, sharing their stories of how yoga has impacted their lives. Um, and when it started, I had a vague idea that there was something to this yoga thing that was actually quite good. Turns out I was right, like it does um, <laughs> impact people's lives in a very, very positive way. It impacted my own. So that was what started my own journey into yoga um, or into this rather. Um, and yeah, I, I've so as a cultural historian and sociologist, I was fascinated by people and their stories and how this thing we call yoga um, can make a difference in people's lives. So the collecting of stories was simply a way of bringing people together and creating a space where people could be open and honest about the impact that it had had. And at the same time was a way to build a a community of people that wanted to use that that power of yoga to go on and, and help others. Yeah. And how did you get into yoga, first of all? Obviously, you've got your your skills as a journalist and a researcher and a historian, et cetera, et cetera. But how did you get into yoga? What was your journey into yoga initially? Um, I think it was probably like a lot of people. It was just through the physical practice, you know, here in the West. um, That meant I got into it, first of all, through, I wouldn't even say got into it. I kind of probably reluctantly went to a yoga class at my local gym because I had the gym package and it included all the other things that you do in a gym. (laughs) And then one day where I'd worn myself out to the point of exhaustion, thought maybe I'll do this yoga thing. It's a bit of a nice stretch. Um, (laughs) And that's what it was for a little while. And then a yoga studio opened in my little town in Hertfordshire. Um, So I then discovered that there were other kinds of yoga, that yoga wasn't just, you know, stretching in the gym. And then one day did a yoga class and was laying in Savasana and just had this emotional release. And at the same time, I kind of had an experience that I guess was I hadn't experienced for 30 years. Like I used when I was younger, I was quite involved in the club scene and the acid house scene. And I perhaps did things I shouldn't have done. But if my mum's listening, she wouldn't know about. But, you know, (laughs) I, you know, recreational drugs, things like that. I had those experiences and then went on to live a very safe middle-class life where those things were in the past and then lay there in this savasana one day and it was like wow (laughs) I feel pretty good um I hit this emotional high and thought okay there's definitely something happening here what's it all about and then like a lot of people I think it just creeps up on you you know I suddenly realized that issues like anxiety stress um you know i can have a bit of a temper sometimes I still do it's not cured but you know um at times where I may have got angry or lost control I suddenly found that I was able to without even consciously realizing it suddenly I was doing a breathing technique in the middle of the supermarket instead of battering someone over the head with a courgette because they pushed in front of me in the queue you know it was a case of like wow I'm changing 
And it might be this yoga thing that I'm doing every day that might be playing a part in that. So from that, that triggered my my journey into yeah more serious yoga, I guess. Yeah, yeah. That's incredible. I mean, that's the main thing as teachers, we often say to people in classes, what have you discovered in this class that you can take outside of the room? And much as we have like these immense power yoga classes, it's always really interesting to understand the more subtle aspects that people can take into the rest of their lives about breath work and controlling the emotions and learning to overcome your own traumas and your own insecurities or your own anger issues or whatever. Yeah. Completely. Um, so that weaved together with your idea, weaved, wove, wove together. <laughs> Bad English, miss. <laughs> Um, wove together <laughs> with your previous knowledge and you ended up with fierce calm yeah and like you said and like we see on the instagram because we're a very instagram focused podcast um <laughs> like you see on instagram um you have many 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 stories of all sorts of hugely interesting people from all over the world with really different journeys through yoga and really different stories under that title yoga saved my life don't you and how do you find these people um so at the moment it's a struggle because as as fierce calm has evolved um i have less time to spend on social media than i did in the beginning in the beginning <laughs> i wasn't doing anything else other than just collecting these stories and had these ideas of things that maybe we could do now we're doing those things there's less time to find those stories um, Obviously, as we've grown, the stories can find me. You know, people just stumble across the site and will say, look, I've got a really interesting yoga story. Can I share it? Um, the answer to that is always yes. Um, I've never said no to anybody, um, apart from once, um, which we can talk about. Um, <laughs> and, and that was the case from the start. It was just a case of, you know, spending way too much time on Instagram in the beginning, you know, just playing around and sometimes you would see people use a hashtag like you know accessible yoga or or yoga for for cancer or whatever it might be it was it was it's relatively easy to find stories and sometimes you just stumble across like you probably do this yourself you'll you'll stumble across a page or an account and you realize very quickly that this person has something very interesting to say and mm. you want to learn a little bit more so yeah that's that's how I found the stories really um you know they're there you just don't have to look yeah. very hard but I will say as well you know that often the 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 stories that have been the most powerful sometimes are those accounts sometimes where it's the classic girl on a beach doing handstands and they just take part in yoga challenges and on the surface you might think this is just you know your white western yoga girl doing yoga on a beach um and then they'll message you and say, look, I've got a story. And then when you read that story behind the handstands on the beach, you know, there's a there's a journey there that they've been through, that we've all been through as human beings. So, yeah, it was a real lesson as well in learning not to judge things by surface appearances that, you know, what we see on social media, the stories behind it are are real. Um, these are real people. So, yeah. That's a really good point because we've actually had this conversation come up about Instagram friendly yoga and, you know, the sort of pretty, pretty aesthetic aspect of things that you see on Instagram. And I forget which of our conversations it was in now when we were discussing the authenticity of yoga. There's huge conversations at the moment on um, on various people's platforms around the authenticity of yoga. Um, and really looking back at yoga's roots, but also questioning who who yoga is for um, and that it is more than these handstands and things. And I think it's a very judgmental way of being, like you said, because whatever people project on social media isn't actually real life, is it? Not at all. Not at all. And let's be honest. I mean, I, I, we've all been on a journey with social media over the years where we've fallen in love with it, then learned to hate it, then realised reluctantly that we have to rely upon it. Because if we don't, for example, if we don't play the social media game sometimes, you know, like now the work that we currently do, we, we, we need to fundraise. And in order to fundraise, we need to get the message out there about what we're doing. And in order to do that, we need to use social media. But in order to be seen on social media, we have to play the social media game. You know, and mm. 
that's a constant challenge. You know, it's like I know for a fact that, for example, if you I've been on a journey right from the beginning and it, the journey in a way reflects my yoga journey. You know, in the beginning, when people when I spoke to people about sharing a story and I still say this now is, look, there's no format. You you've got a story to tell. You want to tell it. Just share the story like it's it's your story. It's your page for the day. I'm not going to steer you in any particular direction. Whatever you want to say, feel, feel free to say it. Um, there is one caveat, and that is, and that comes back to the only time I've ever had to do this, is say to somebody, look, I'm not going to share your story, is when people have come to me and said, I, I might have a story, but I don't have many followers, or, or I don't think it's that interesting. And, you know, often the people who think their story is not very interesting is actually the most interesting story. Yeah. But doesn't matter how many followers you've got what you look like whether you've got great photographs it doesn't matter like your story was always welcome the one caveat was it needs to be your story about how yoga has helped you in any way at all and not about how you think yoga might help other people so the one time it needs to be a first person account and the only time I ever said no to somebody was they they basically started the story by saying that very briefly that they had mental health issues, but now they believe that yoga can cure anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder, this, that, that, that. And I had to go back and go, no, first of all, this isn't your story. And secondly, we're not here to make outlandish, outrageous, unscientific claims about how yoga is going to save your life. Like it may have helped you. You may think it saved my life in a metaphorical way. Yes. But what yeah, we're yeah. not going to do is have a platform where people are saying, if you do yoga, it's going to clear bipolar disorder for example that yeah you're not you know, making bold medical statements it's absolutely a, it's a so personal even, thing isn't it it's exactly. personal yoga saved my life exactly my, yeah yeah but yeah. in the way that you know you might say last night a dj saved my life like it's it's <laughs> yeah. it's an external exactly. phrase and it's again it's one that i've i've kind of eased away from over the last again i've been on a journey I'm not entirely comfortable with that phrase anymore because mm -hmm. of the way it can be misinterpreted and because yeah especially during the pandemic, for example, where what I didn't want people to think we were saying or putting a message out there was that yoga is going to cure COVID. Yoga is going to protect you from, ah. you know, it's, it's, it's not. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah. Cause I guess there's a danger of it falling into the wrong hands and being slightly misinterpreted rather than it just being a slogan, isn't it? Especially when people are in that time of as we were talking before we hit record actually in that trauma happening exactly. things have slightly different connotations don't they exactly so yeah. i've even there I'm, I'm on a constant journey of evolution like do we continue to use that hashtag and yeah. i have kind of dialed it down now you know there are fewer stories anyway um if somebody uses it in the story in a way that is like i was stressed and anxious at work and i did some yoga and it saved my life it's clear it's meant metaphorically. Again, yeah, if somebody yeah. came along and made claims, unscientific claims about how yoga was going to cure cancer or something, you know, then um, yeah. there's a time when we wouldn't use we wouldn't use that hashtag or that phrase. But yeah, exactly. We're always constantly developing with that kind of thing. I mean, I remember when I started playing around on her Instagram and different things, and there were all these different hashtags of like um, inversion junkie. And things like that. And I'm like, I don't want to use that anymore because that word is mm. incredibly triggering for certain people, depending on their history, on their personal history. If they've had a history of addiction, they don't want randomers like me throwing that word around because it's exactly. a sensitive word. So I'm careful about the hashtags that I use and the slogans that I throw around these days because you you never know who's watching. Exactly. Yeah. It's a very good point. Yeah. You never know who's watching. Yeah. So in terms of what you're actually doing outside of Instagram, what, what is fierce calm outside of these stories that are thrown at you? The, the foundations of the project and the reach of the project really. So it's, again, it's a constant journey of evolution. It started out. The idea was really simply that, um, how can we harness the collective power of all these individual yoga teachers out there that it's one of the paradoxes of yoga, I guess, isn't it? Is that it's a practice of healing the self, but I see it as a practice of where we might heal or discover ourselves in order that we then might go out into the world and do good for, for the collective um, bunch of selves that are out there for want of a better way of putting it. Mm, yeah. So 
uh, what I saw in the very beginning is because I've always been involved or wanted to be involved in the charity sector and helping others and being of service pre-yoga. Um, when I came into the yoga world, what I saw was a lot of individual yoga teachers saying things like, well, I would do things to raise money or I would do this or I would do that. But it's just me. I've only got 20 followers or I've only got 10 students or I would see yoga teachers doing something for charity and think, well, hang on a minute. There's there's millions of yoga teachers here on Instagram. Like, Actually, if we just got together <laughs> collectively, we could make a, have a huge impact. Um and that was the idea was that I'd just get yoga teachers together to do things, to raise money and support other projects, other charities, other causes um, of their choosing. It was never meant to be, and I hope it never is, but I'm aware again that it happens. It was never meant to be about me. It was meant to be about what we could do as a collective. Um, so the initially the first couple of years was really just about getting people together and raising funds for existing charities and existing causes. And we did... Um, I guess that the high point in that first couple of years was we organized the global 108 where on the day of the solstice um and again <laughs> international day of yoga there's a whole conversation to be had about now do we do things on international day of yoga which now we yeah. don't um but at the time we did and we did it on international day of yoga slash the summer solstice and we had an event where we got had people all over the world do 108 sun salutations or 108 minutes of meditation or 108 minutes of chair yoga, whatever it was they wanted to do. The only caveat being that we all did it at exactly the same time on the same day. Okay. Um, and then we could link that up through Instagram and through Facebook and things like that. The idea was my dream when I first had it was that we would have 10 locations around the world, say 10 studios, do it simultaneously. Yeah. Um, we had 500 um oh my goodness on your first event yeah but the first big event we had 500 locations around the world we had a studio we had sorry we had a, a, a festival in Hertfordshire where we had lots of teachers from around London come and teach and then had a 108 sun salutations at that event um funnily enough we were just talking about Danny Pomploon Danny Pomploon flew over from San Francisco and mm -hmm. taught at the event along with other teachers from London yeah um, and then we broadcast that and then around the world, other people either followed along at home or organized their own event in studios. So we had, when I say 500 events, it wasn't 500 big events. I mean, some of those events were like 12 people and a dog up a mountain in the Cairngorms. Um, you know, it, it might have been six people on a beach in Mexico, but if we count that as an event, there were 500 of them. But we had 150 people in front of the Statue of Liberty in New York on Liberty Island. Wow. Um, a couple of hundred people in Harvard Square. Um, there was a studio chain in Seoul in South Korea that I think had 12 studios and they opened the studios at three in the morning to coincide with the time that we did it and did it through their studios um, to, to oh, coincide with us. And then what we did was people around the world nominated charities from we tried to pick a charity a cause from different continents and different parts of the world. But then people would simply raise money and donate to that cause wherever it may be that appealed to them um okay. so that was it it was about bringing the yoga community together globally to try and do some good so you were the facilitator you were like the broker between the wonderful ideas and the people and then other charities yeah essentially yeah, yeah. and how did you end up becoming a charity yourself how did that transformation happen so for those first couple of years whenever we did an event it was a case of you know you don't donate to us donate to another cause let's raise money for other causes but over time the more work that we did the more training that we did the more involved we became with other other charities that over time it was inevitable that we would start to deliver our own projects you know a teacher might have said you know look i i would like to offer a yoga program in a women's shelter for a particular charity um is it possible to raise money to fund that and of course, when you end up raising money to fund that, you end up running it. So inevitably, we, we morphed into that, that as well. Um, you and I didn't talk about this when we spoke before, but for example, I think I we're in a at the moment we're in a process of either, again, we're in constant evolution. But I would say at the moment we're almost in a process of revolution. Um, post-pandemic, coming out of, you know, coming into a, a different yoga world, um, different kinds of challenges, obviously the war in Ukraine, which we were talking about just now as well um we are going to be doing things differently um i suspect that we may be running less of our own programs um 
and go back to our roots, which is just bringing people together to fundraise for other causes um, rather than growing the number of programs that we run ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, there are a lot of wonderful, again, and this was my instinct at the start, there are a lot of wonderful organisations out there doing great work. What they need is funding and support, which we were able to offer, um, as opposed to another yoga charity on the scene trying to do the work that people are already doing very well. And, mm-hmm. and that, for example, with me, wasn't where my skill lies. My skill lies in bringing people together, building community and, and trying to raise funds to support those other causes. So that may be where we're headed. So the plan yeah. at the moment is... We also did another thing kind of similar to the Global 108 during the pandemic where it was always about, you know, bringing yoga teachers together and supporting yoga teachers. And what happened in the pandemic was in that early phase of the pandemic when the world went into lockdown and states around the world took them a while to catch up and took them a while to catch up with the fact that a lot of people had lost their income and lost their livelihoods. And of course, yoga teachers, mainly freelancers, were hit particularly hard by that. And I was sat there one day and I saw, you know, on social media, as we all did, that there were yoga teachers around the world with very, very big followings, very big name teachers, celebrity yoga teachers doing events where they were getting like online yoga classes with 2000 people and they were doing it for free. And then I then talked to a yoga teacher who hadn't earned any money for seven weeks and was going to lose her home and was trying to organize online yoga classes and was getting two people. And part of the reason she was only getting two people was because 2,000 people were doing a celebrity teacher's class at the same time. So it was a case of approaching some of the bigger name teachers that were doing that and saying to them, you know, look, it's great that you're offering free yoga, but you do realise that actually at the same time you're offering a free class, someone else can't afford to, to earn a living. Mm. So long story short. You actually short, had that conversation with people then. Yeah. And, you know, everybody yeah. was it was well received by everybody that I spoke to. You know, it was a case of often just like people thinking, you know what? I hadn't thought of it like that. If I'm giving away my product for free. I hate to talk of yoga as a product, but bear with me. You know, if I'm giving no, away no, a product it, it, for it free. Is. This, yeah, this was a, a big conversation for various. I mean, I'm in Copenhagen now. I used to be in the UK. I, I know people all over the world who were having this same conversation about free 30 day yoga sessions, you know, from big people who've got lots of followers on YouTube, literally like taking the custom yeah. from other yoga teachers hands. Yeah. So, and it was it was unintentional. You know, a lot of people were doing the free offering the free yoga classes because they wanted to support a world that had gone into lockdown and uh-huh support people who themselves weren't earning so it was a case of saying you know look you could still do a free class you can still make it free but maybe make it donation based and just say to people look if you'd like to donate so what we did was we created a global cooperative if you like um, whereby we created a fund and then teachers around the world were charging for classes donated classes to the fund that created a pot of money and then yoga teachers then were able to come to us and apply for a 500 pound or a thousand pound grant to basically just keep the wolf from the door so it was okay it was again I guess that was really what fierce calm was about in the beginning without knowing that's what it was intended for was it was about the yoga community supporting the yoga community and that was one of the opportunities we had to do that um so we are kind of looking to reinvigorate or revive that spirit along with the spirit of the global 108 mm. and address the challenge that over the, la- the second year of the pandemic and I'm again you know, you're a yoga teacher, and I'm sure any yoga teachers listening to this will recognize this. The first year of the pandemic, in some ways, was great. <laughs> like, for an online yoga point of view, it was fantastic. It was like you'd do an event and you'd get hundreds of people turn up and you'd raise lots of money. By the second year of the pandemic, it was a disaster. You know, mm. we could no longer fundraise online because nobody was turning up. Um, big name teachers that we used in the early days of the pandemic and we were doing events for 500 people and raising lots of money those same teachers online when we did an online fundraiser 12 months later we were getting 20 people okay so it meant it meant that fundraising that way became very difficult fundraising we'd always done through events in-person events but again last year was really challenging because although the work that the world had opened up yoga studios had reopened in the summer before we went into the winter lockdown again people weren't going to yoga studios in the numbers that they were before. And and in the climate of, you know, around COVID, it was still around. Who was going to turn up to an indoor event with 100 people packed into Mm -hmm. an indoor space? So raising money became almost impossible. Um, 
So coming into this year, we had funding available. We, everything fund the program that we run. I won't commit to a program until I've got the money in the bank first. And it's like, okay, now we can deliver 12 months in a women's shelter or whatever it might be. Right. Yeah. Um, so everything was funded, but there was nothing else and there was nothing coming in. And the idea was, well, we can, we can start to get people to do donation classes for us again, for example, to help raise money. The problem with that is as lovely as that is, it's not sustainable. You know, if somebody does a donation-based class, it's great. We receive a little bit of money, but you can't build programs around that. So it was like, what do we do? What have we learned over the last two years? Looking at how successful the cooperative was and the global event, the idea is, and we're launching it now, so the, the podcast timing is perfect. We're, we're pulling it together literally as we speak, is creating a global collective again of yoga teachers who, in the spirit of fierce calm, will host donation-based classes, but true to the spirit of fierce calm we're not asking people to work for free they're not doing a donation based class where they work for nothing um the idea is wherever you are in the world you can donate 10 percent of a class or 10 pounds or 10 pesos 10 dollars whatever it might be um and it doesn't have to be a special class you could say my first monday class of it first monday of every month is a fierce calm class and we're going to donate 10, let's, for argument's sake, while we're here, say 10 quid from that class. If we can get a 1,000 yoga teachers around the world donating one class a month where they donate 10 whatevers a month towards Fierce Calm, that's £10,000 a month coming in. And then as a collective, we can get together once a month on Zoom um, and we'll nominate through the, the month building up to that Zoom call. People can nominate charities or causes around the world that they want to donate the money to. We'll yeah. have a diverse advisory board made up of a diverse group of teachers from all over the world, reflecting as well the fact that we'll have people coming from different continents and stuff like that. So it, the money won't go to causes here in the UK or in the US. They'll equally go to spaces like India or wherever it might be. Mm -hmm. And every month we get together as teachers, see how much money we've raised, and then we'll vote as a collective where we're going to donate that money so as a yoga teacher you're you know a lot of yoga teachers will say like i, I would do i do donation-based classes or i do stuff for charity but i can't raise much money actually you can be part of something where just for a few quid from one class a month you can get together with another a group of teachers every month and know that collectively you've raised ten thousand pounds well, and that that ten thousand pounds is going to keep a, an orphanage in india afloat for, yeah. for 12 months or something like that so that's the idea, is just to bring yoga teachers around the world together, make a small donation, and we'll work collectively to determine where that money goes. Yeah. And like we said before, as well, and, and other people have said, it's the spirit of yoga, isn't it, to create that community, really, that that yeah. unity, the coming together and the unity, really, and supporting yeah. one another. I found the actual, it's not part of the um, eight limbs of yoga, I don't think, but I found the word the other day for... Um, uh, from the Hatha Yoga Pradipka, um, which is about charity. Um, and I think sometimes people overlook the fact that there is this charitable aspect to yoga. And we always, we talk about the eight limbs of yoga and this isn't in the eight limbs of yoga. I'm just going to find it. Dana. So the Hatha Yoga Pradipika talks about Dana, which is charity, apparently um and yeah how you can give food money clothes support your time to help others yeah. and uh, i'm surprised actually that that isn't part of the yamas and niyamas because you think it would wrap in quite nicely with a lot of those other things but anyway there you go listeners dana is your charitable aspect to yoga what i was going to come back to as well lee was you mentioned that you do training um and you're obviously doing a lot of work at the moment before you redirect back to your original form at the moment you're doing work with like you said women's shelters people who are refugees people who have been through an amount of trauma or traumatic events face traumatic events in their life what is your how does your training link with that work so that what initially came from um a partnership with a charity here in london called armala and with Armala, um, Armala have been running for, I think, at the point where we got involved. So it's, I think it's 12 years now at that point. It was about nine or 10 years working in London, serving refugees and asylum seekers. Um, and was one of the first sort of organisations 
to, to people have been dead. Yoga teachers have been serving marginalized communities like that all the time. I mean, I'm not claiming Armala invented that particular wheel, mm-hmm. but you know, it was the first sort of large organization in London to be doing that at scale. Um, and Armala over the years, obviously having gained experience in that field, um, offered training to teachers to be able to work with those kind of populations. Um, Fierce Khan became involved with Armala initially, again, same journey really, as a fundraising, we, we were raising money for, for Armala um, and then began funding specific and particular classes. Um, when the pandemic struck, um, that was a very challenging time for Armala, um, really difficult time financially, a lot of restructuring had to be done. And long story short, um, I said that, you know, Fierce Calm could take on some of the, would take on the classes that Fierce Calm was funding. And that it was a case of, well, actually, if we can take those on, we could take the others on. And because Armala had lost a lot of staff, um, we ended up, we effectively now, we deliver the Armala um, yoga program. So Armala exists as a name and as a charity, but Fierce Calm delivers the program and manages the program. Um, So one of the great revenue, and again, sadly, often comes back to money, you know. Um, one of the ways that, you know, we could support Armala was to deliver that training. People are willing to know as the conversations around trauma, trauma-informed yoga, trauma-sensitive yoga um, have grown over the years, there's people wanting to, to get an introduction into that training. So we offer that training online as an online training at the moment in partnership with Armala. So that's using Armala's experience and the teacher we have has worked with the UN and worked in Europe and various governmental refugee yoga programs and has just done a PhD on the subject of, of trauma-informed yoga and working with refugees. So we offer a training in working with it's providing trauma-informed yoga to refugees and asylum seekers or other marginalized communities because mm-hmm. a lot of those skills are transferable to other groups. So yeah, that's one of the trainings that we offer. And then we've also been involved with um, a partner of ours in Australia, um, Yoga for Humankind, and have been involved in trainings with them as well, delivering, again, trauma-informed yoga yeah. to, to yoga teachers. Yeah. And what's the, like... I mean, I know I may know the answer to this, but what is the importance of having people to do uh, having people do a training in trauma informed yoga? I mean, some people say, oh, you know, I understand what trauma is or I am from a minority myself. And what is the importance of having people do an actual training with a professional in that area of yoga? Because having done one myself, it wasn't really about the yoga. It wasn't about the poses. Um, it wasn't like when I did my 200 hour or my advanced. It wasn't, you know, learning the most in, important way to stand in a warrior too. It was nothing to do with that at all. Um, so from your mouth as a professional, um, what is the importance in doing one of these courses? Um, so I think it's a really interesting conversation. It's, it's, it's like, it's one of like for a whole podcast, I think um, <laughs> is, you know, first of all, I think it's something that every yoga teacher should be aware of and understand because in every yoga class, there is somebody who has been impacted by trauma, who will be suffering some form of, of PTSD in every single yoga class. I think st- statistics, what does they say? 90% of statistics are made up on the spot, but there's a statistic, <laughs> something like it's 20%. So 20% of people in a, in a yoga class have trauma, have experienced some kind of trauma, whether that be from sexual abuse or PTSD from conflict, whatever it might be. There are people in that space who are carrying trauma. You're going to have to excuse me one second. My cat is hollering at me at the door. <laughs> and I'm worried people are going to hear it. We're often disturbed by cats on here because I have my own cat here, which frequently comes and stands next to me and shouts at the person at the other end of the laptop. So, Which is what he's doing right now. He's clearly traumatised because he's not had his dinner, basically. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, there are going to be people in the yoga space who have in your class who are experiencing trauma and the issue is I think a lot of I've spoken to teachers in the past who think that they don't want to be a trauma-informed yoga teacher or a trauma-sensitive yoga teacher that that they people in their class don't fall into that category or for example I think there may be a resistance sometimes where and I've had this conversation with teachers where they've 
they've said, you know, that that's not what I do, that I offer power vinyasa classes or whatever it might be. And I think it's what you said about postures and things like that is there's this idea perhaps that there are two different things. If you're working specifically with a group of people in a women's shelter who are survivors of sexual abuse or trafficking or whatever it may be, then yes, you are delivering a trauma-informed or trauma-sensitive yoga class specifically. Yeah. But trauma-informed also means just being aware of the issues of trauma and how the yoga practice can in equal measure heart heal and also harm people. Yeah. And that just having a basic awareness of some of the things, being informed about some of the issues that may arise in a yoga space and that some of these practices that we're using in a yoga room in an asana class, for example, are wonderful, powerful tools. I mean, they're, they're incredible healing modalities, but at the same time, in certain instances, can actually be quite harmful or quite triggering for some people. Mm -hmm. So we're not asking every teacher to teach a trauma-informed yoga class, but I think every teacher can benefit from just simply understanding some of the issues that may arise or some of the ways in which their practice or their teaching may or may not be doing harm to the people in front of them. Yeah. Because it isn't just a case of sort of thinking, oh, I suffered from anxiety, so I understand, you know, whoever might be in front of me. It's a complete rearrangement of your language and your instruction and your ability to give everybody in the room options. Mm. Exactly. So that if they have anything in their mind that is triggering that they need to respond to, they know that they're in a place where they have options. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, I mean, again, this sounds quite judgmental, but, you know, I've, I've heard people sometimes say things like, well, I really don't think when you talk about people being triggered that anyone in my regular yoga class fits that bill, that it's, it doesn't happen. And I've said, yeah, but how would you know? Because the ones who've come and have had that experience haven't come back. So <laughs> you've, you, you've eliminated those people already. You know, they've yeah. not felt safe or welcome in your space. And I think that's the, that's the key word is we cannot create spaces of absolute safety. You know, we cannot say that our yoga class is a safe space because who are we to decide, you know, what is safe for the people in the room? Everybody's experience is different. But we can do our best to make it as safe as possible. And, you know, I don't think there's a teacher out there that would not want their yoga, that would not want to think that their yoga class is a safe space for somebody. So yes. it's just about a few little signposts. You know, it's in, bearing in mind what we teach is, a, is an introductory class. It's only a two-day course you know it the one that we currently offer it really does just scrape the surface yeah but if we can just make you know a few teachers out there aware of the ways in which teaching the traditional patriarchal you know structured often lineages of yoga that might actually have a, a harmful impact on some of their students then yeah. that's why we do it because you can go incredibly deep into it can't you like neurology and patterns of responses in the brain I got super interested in that in mine um but yeah I think it, it, it's conversations that have come up in the yoga world before about people being told that they should do something a certain way or even something simple like um shavasana traditionally it's lying down on the floor you might find that somebody for some reason may be incredibly triggered by lying down on the floor for an extended amount of time so it's a case of getting to that point in the class and saying if you want to exactly having, having that self-control giving people that self-control exactly it's about agency it's about agency. yeah it's about agency i mean there's a very simple and, and obviously it's full of flaws whenever you simplify something but a very simple way of you know maybe explaining the consequences of trauma to, to somebody is that a tra somebody suffering from trauma or PTSD has usually had something that has happened to them like something has been done to them whether it's by an individual or by a group of people or by a conflict or inadvertently they have had something happen to them and therefore for that period of time they weren't necessarily in control of their own bodies in their own lives so when they come into the yoga space we kind of want to shift away from that sense of where we're denying people agency over their own bodies you know giving mm -hmm. people full agency over their own bodies it's their practice it's their body and it's up to them so if somebody goes to a yoga class for the first time and 
not even necessarily somebody with trauma. I mean, just someone who's, you know, nervous, anxious, never been to yoga before, is a little bit intimidated, and they come into your class. If you're told you need to lie on the floor and close your eyes, and closing your eyes in a room full of strangers, yeah, you know, may not be something that you're particularly comfortable with doing. Over yeah. time, as you go every week, you may become more comfortable with it. So telling people that it's Savasana and you must close your eyes because this is how we do it, Mm-hmm. Again, that person probably won't come back the following week. You know, they're right. going to leave and think, well, that's not for me. I didn't like that experience. So just simply offering them and, you know, using invitational language. You know, there's an invitation to close your eyes if you're comfortable doing so. But if you don't, that's fine. Whatever mm-hmm. feels good for you. You know, whatever feels good for you in your body. It's not about me as a teacher, what I want to happen in your body or what your pose should necessarily look like or how it should feel. Because again, teachers telling people this is going to feel good that's going to feel nice well nobody knows what it feels like in someone else's body so it's moving away from from that that kind of language yeah precisely and we have to remember and I think it's really difficult sometimes to to remember this we have to remember that all of this stuff that we're teaching all of these things it basically comes down to experience doesn't it It, the, the personal experience the writing down of poses and the instructions on how to do them wasn't really written down until recent times. All the rest of it, it was just a rough idea of something to give you an energetic experience. And if that energetic experience meant that you had one hand up and one hand down and your eyes wide open, well, then so be it, you know? (laughs) Exactly. It's not, you know, it's not a performance. It's about getting people, especially people with trauma, for example, it's about getting them back into their bodies. And, you know, they've disconnected mind and body. It's about getting them back into their bodies. So in that case, you know, if that's what it's about, who cares what the pose looks like? You know, know, not what I think it should look like or what somebody else said it should look like. It's how it feels for that particular person in the room in front of you. You know, again, Halakuri, someone who's influenced me greatly and and whose work I, you know, respect enormously. I think... I'm going to make a mistake here. I can't remember the exact phrase she used. She doesn't like to call it trauma-informed or trauma-sensitive yoga. She likes to call it, I think it's human-informed or human-sensitive yoga rather than trauma because at the end of the day, it's just about identifying that this is a human being in front of you who has a different lived experience to your own. And as a yoga teacher, you know, I've known yoga teachers, a really good friend of mine. I won't out her. I won't name her. She's a really, really experienced teacher who studied yoga philosophy as deeply as, as anybody I know and she said to me once you know I was like, well I'm not really like trauma informed yoga it's not my thing it's not what I teach it's not what I'm about and I don't like to use the phrase good yoga or a good teacher but I will <laughs> forgive me for this moment you know she is a very good teacher and as a very good yoga teacher she teaches the student that is in front of her mm-hmm. and I said to her actually it doesn't have a label like you I've, you've, you've taught me, you don't actually need to do this training because you you already teach the person who is in front of you and meet you where you're at. You're already doing the things. You're incredibly sensitive to the person that's in front of you rather than having this dogmatic approach. I mean, we've all done it. I've done it with yoga teachers where, you know, sometimes a new yoga teacher, but sometimes not, where I've gone into the yoga class and I've taught a class and they're demonstrating at the front. And there's a point in the class where I've looked and I've thought they're looking at their notes and they're doing their own practice. And I thought I could get up and walk out now or or we could get out a Scrabble board at the back of the class and start playing Scrabble. Mm. And and they're not going to notice like they're not even connected with who's in the room in front of them. You know, yeah. and I think that's that's one of the keys is, is just about being able to teach the room that's in front of you and, and meet them where they're at and not necessarily where the sequence that either you wrote down at home or somebody else wrote down for you a hundred years ago is telling you that these people need to be doing. Yeah. And like you said, it's about bringing people back into their bodies. This is where you must find an awful lot of amazing results when you're doing the work with people who are in refugee groups and in shelters and in these community spaces you've got these people who've been through all sorts of domestic violence or conflict or whatever you must see fantastic results from the classes that happen in those spaces from the teachers that you're sending into those spaces with these people we do and we have done and um again i should possibly not say this but you know that 
<laughs> we're in a constant process of reevaluation. If we're not asking questions of what we're doing every single day, then we're not doing the yoga in inverted commas. Mm. You know, um, it's Svadhyaya, right? It's self study. If we're not constantly reevaluating yeah, yeah. and questioning what we're doing. So, you know, if we take the pandemic, you know, that was a bit of a journey in the sense that if you take the Armala classes where we work with refugees and asylum seekers, we were providing yoga, but it was also providing them with something else, which was community and a space to be seen and be heard, to felt welcomed. And in Britain in 2022, that's not something that happens very often. You know, we have our hostile environment, immigration policy, that's just got an awful lot worse. So for a refugee and asylum seeker living in a bed sit or in a hostel mm-hmm. in a country where the constant messages from authorities, from the media, from the press, from society itself is you're not welcome here. We don't want you here, mm-hmm. that you are a problem to have an hour a week where you go somewhere and you're greeted and you're welcomed into a space where people are like, Hey, we see you like you're welcome here. Like, you know, how can we help you? How can we support you? is a huge thing for those people so i was going to say it's not always about the yoga that is yoga right it's not about the asana practice but it's about you know being of service to those people providing them that with that space community but what happened in the pandemic was obviously when when the spaces that we were working in all closed and we couldn't reach those communities and we really couldn't reach those communities because what happened was where the yoga world went online despite what the Daily Mail might like to have us believe, for those not in the UK listening to this, the Daily Mail is like one of the most popular selling newspapers, but it's fairly right-wing conservative. It's um, a horrible newspaper. Publication. I'm trying to hold back in my language, yeah, of how I describe the Daily Mail. But, you know, as the Daily Mail might like to have us believe, uh, so all asylum seekers aren't equipped with iPhones and iPads and, and yeah. the latest technology. You know, they don't have access to those things. So, so they're not able to do online yoga classes. So it meant... There was a real rupture in the pandemic where we suddenly were unable to stop serving those groups because we couldn't Mm. teach them yoga classes in yoga spaces. And when I say there's been a process of re-evaluation going on, is that I realised too late that actually the yoga can take many forms. And we didn't provide yoga classes through much of that period. But actually, when I stop and look back and I realised it too late, was we were providing community. We were providing a space for them to connect with other people. And the yoga doesn't have to be practiced on a yoga mat. So what we could have done was we could have got them together and met on Hampstead Heath in London instead of a a yoga studio and just gone for a walk and sat on a bench for 20 minutes and meditated and just just walked and mindfully enjoyed the sunshine and given them some time out, you know, with other people. And I regret to say, for example, we didn't do that. And that would have been another way of practicing yoga and supporting those people. So next time the pandemic happens, you know, you'll see us wandering around Hampstead Heath with a bunch of refugees and asylum seekers. Yeah. But at the time it was like, we do the yoga, we get together in studios and we teach them yoga and we give them this yoga practice. And actually that's not necessarily what it's all about. So we're also looking as well at, uh, we're going to partner with a a fantastic organization run by Julia Midland in, in the States, but has now set up here in the UK as a registered charity called the Empowerment Project. And I'm greatly inspired by the work that they do. Funny enough, Halakuri is also involved in the Empowerment Project. And we're having conversations with them about how do we, re- again, how do we serve these people? How do we give them what they need rather than what we think they need? So we think they need the yoga. So we give a yoga class. It's like, no, what is it that they need? And what happened in the pandemic was there was a wonderful group, for example, of students that we worked with at Tri Yoga in Soho. We had a lovely class running there where they would come, they'd get some food and the staff there really looked after them. And Mira, who runs the cafe there, would feed them. And it was a really lovely experience. And when the pandemic struck, we didn't, I've never seen any of them again, not once. And oh. that pains me. And also when I look back at what we could have done instead, a lesson learned but at the same time I realized if you'd said to me three four weeks before the final class because none of us saw it coming you're never going to see these people again in three weeks time 
the yoga classes we were doing would have looked very different. We'd have focused very much on providing them with the techniques and the tools and the resources, self-regulation techniques, breathwork practices that they could use so that when they were on their own through the next six months of the pandemic, they had something that they could use themselves or if they lived in some of them, for example, there were four of them lived in a hostel together. They could have used these tools not only with their friends, but other people in the hostel and empowered them. So what the empowerment project has been doing for several years is working in refugee camps around the world, providing training to people on site, short courses, giving them the schools, the skills and the tools to to use yoga, basic yoga techniques to help them self-regulate and heal or, you know, deal with some of the effects of trauma. So that's an area that we really are trying to focus on now as well. Um, So the pandemic taught us a lot. Yeah. Instead of them being in that space where they're constantly in their Paris, their sympathetic nervous system, their constant fight or flight, they can withdraw a little bit and, and just understand themselves instead of feeling so fearful, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and just simple tools, you know, it comes back to that yoga, yoga off the mat. Right? It doesn't have to be practiced yeah. on a rubber yoga mat from Lululemon. <laughs> you know, in a central London boutique studio, like it can be in a refugee camp, five minutes of, of Nadi Sharana, like alternate nostril breathing or something like that can make a difference. And, you know, if we can teach people those skills and explain to them that this is going to help you or might help you in those situations, then I think that's where our focus needs to needs to lie. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to see a shift from you in the next few months then, or the next few weeks. You're on it already, are you? Yeah, I mean, so we're working on launching that collective so that we can raise some funds for other programmes and also continue to run our own programmes. And then, yeah, we will be looking to work more in that, on the training side of things. Again, training teachers, but also training students. I mean, we're all students, you know, training, training students as well. Yeah, yeah. So then you've got a bank of people um, who you can basically use to go into situations wherever those situations might be and just say, what do you need? And yeah. you've got a group of people there, staff, for want of a better word, who can jump to anything that those those people need. Yeah, that's the idea. And I mean, that's that obviously, again, as we came into this year, you know, mid-February, the, the situation in Ukraine, the war in Ukraine started and that again has presented a whole set of new challenges and was or was perceived by me at the time to be an opportunity to do that work um, effectively in, in inverted commas in the field um, and support people with training in some of these techniques and trauma-informed techniques that may be useful to people fleeing conflict. Um, but again, it's a developing situation over there that's you know developing very rapidly and changing by the day. Um, and what we're doing there, for example, is the idea initially was that, yes, we would be able to provide training to yoga teachers and yoga studios that already exist in Ukraine, that there's actually already a group of teachers who have the basic skills that they've learned as yoga teachers, that when they arrive in a refugee camp or wherever it is they may be going or whether they're still in place, that we could provide them with, you know, tools and training that they can use with their communities to, to work with people suffering from trauma, which they may not have encountered before. Mm. Um, but again, it's an ongoing situation. So again, it's a constant yeah. re-evaluation. It's like now's as much as we would like to be providing training, actually, you just used the phrase just now, it's actually, it's identifying what people need in that yeah. moment. So right now, you know, in the early days, as, as, as teachers were fleeing places like Kiev and places further east or other places in the West, their yoga studios were becoming humanitarian aid shelters or, or the teachers themselves were literally, you know, fleeing on a train with a, a cat and a basket and a suitcase they didn't need me coming along saying, hey, I can provide you with some training. It's like, no, actually, what I need is, is a, somewhere to sleep tonight and, you know, a safe space for me and my child. So then our focus in Ukraine has been this early phase on really just supporting yoga teachers financially in the hope that once they get to where they're going, whether that's a refugee camp in Poland or a community in Romania, we can start to set them up again with a little bit of training and the resources that they need. So, you know, we've got a couple of programs running out there where people now have reached their destination or are still in the place they were living and have funded them with, with, you know, money to to keep a studio open or provide them with yoga mats or room hire and and get get them going in that way. Mm. 
So you really are reaching into those aspects of dana, aren't you? The charity that is more than the yoga practice, like you said. Yeah, I mean, things. you know, it, it, for me, it's been really clear from the start. It's, you know, I've I benefited hugely from yoga in sharing these stories going back to the beginning. You know, I saw just how much this helps people, how useful it can be. Um, but let's be honest, it's not accessible to everybody. Not everybody has access to it. And just instinctively, you know, it was very much, you know, I talked earlier about how I first got into yoga when a very nice yoga studio opened up in my very nice middle-class privileged white little town in rural in, in Hertfordshire. But I would lay there in that yoga class thinking, well, this is amazing, but not everybody can afford to do this. Not everybody can pay a hundred pounds a month membership to come and do what I'm doing now. And that's yeah. just not like, sounds naive, but it, I was just like, that just ain't right. Like that's not right. Like this yeah. is so simple and should be available to everybody. So again, we also do a lot of work on terms of, you know, social justice work and trying to make yoga more accessible we've, we've done a lot of work over the last two years where we were unable during the pandemic to deliver classes in a way that pause gave us time to focus our energies on addressing something that really was apparent for example in London was that there was a, a, a real issue around diversity in terms of teachers who had done the advanced training and things like trauma um, mm -hmm. and yoga therapy so a lot of our resources over the last two years have gone on on basically providing scholarships to teachers from um, marginalized groups, teachers of color um, and refugee and migrant previously students, now teachers in training them in the skills and giving them resources to, to work with their own communities. Because again, it was something yeah. we saw in London, you know, working with refugees and asylum seekers three, four years ago when we started to fund programs, there were a lot of, you know, well-intended, well-meaning middle-class white people teaching rooms full of, of people from Syria or, or Afghanistan or, or African migrants. And, you know, you only have to talk to those students to know that they, they benefit far more greatly from, from working with people who have a shared experience or, you yeah, know, to yeah. use a phrase that they would use, that when a white yoga teacher walks into a room that looks like the people in the room, it makes a big difference. So yeah. we've worked hard at trying to... Uh, address that in some way yeah yeah and again this comes back to a very uh, a, a big conversation that you find on instagram about the accessibility side of yoga and it isn't it isn't so much about just the fact that we need more indian yoga teachers in denmark i had the conversation with somebody there's a, a a lady that some of the readers might guess who it is on Instagram, who's constantly talking about accessibility and authenticity in yoga. And I actually wanted to have a conversation with her um, about the, the fact that she's always saying that um, there aren't enough Indian yoga teachers in America. There aren't enough Indian yoga teachers in European countries. And I was like, there aren't enough Indian people full stop in European countries because it's Europe. <laughs> you know, like if you look at the basic demographics of a country, are you suddenly going to end up with a 50-50 split of white people and Indian people when there isn't even 50% of the population are Indian? Never mind yoga teachers. They work in their own business. They're in fashion. They're in cooking or whatever, you know. Um, but accessibility is more than that, isn't it? I mean, really, yoga was a practice that came from the religious people and the monastic types and was practiced by everybody in India. Well, what we now know as India. Yeah. Um, so the fact that it's become quite an elitist practice, like you said, for people who can afford to pay hundreds of pounds for a studio membership is uh, that in itself is a little bit wrong. It's not really so much about the color of your skin. It's about making it a, an open, accessible practice for everybody. Yeah, and sadly, it's it's not that at the moment in, mm -hmm. in the Western yoga world. You know, those studios that are charging that amount of money, and that's not a judgment, that's not a criticism of those studios, because, you know, if you're in London, you've got to charge a lot of money to pay your rent. Um, yeah. But it, it does, you know... It's, Sorry, that was my cat, in case you could hear him. He's, uh, you know, it's it does mean that it's that it's far more inaccessible. And then the fact that, that then there's only a particular demographic that can actually attend those classes means that when somebody 
you know, from a different background, whether that be culturally or, or financially, ends up going to one of those spaces, they they feel like the exception. They don't feel welcome. So yeah, yeah. I think that's the thing, isn't it? The finances. And at the end of the day, people need to be paid for their time. You can't do everything for nothing. Maybe we need to have a campaign where basically yoga becomes part of um, healthcare provision. Well, I mean, that is funny enough. That is, again, something that we, you know, we're involved in, in that um, <laughs> I used to work with the, the Minded Institute. Um, I still do work. I used to work for the Minded Institute. Now I just work with the Minded Institute. Um, but, you know, Heather Mason and Paul Fox um, have set up the Yoga and Healthcare Alliance and very much at the forefront of driving social prescribing and getting yoga onto the NHS and to be recommended as a therapy via the NHS. Mm -hmm. um, because, again, you know, we're, we're about making yoga more accessible. Well, if it were free <laughs> and on the NHS, that would that would certainly solve a lot of those issues. So that's mm -hmm. something that we are involved in. Um, we're involved in the all-party parliamentary yoga group that kind of was on hold for the last couple of years, but is now reforming again in June. Um, um, Heather Mason's put a lot of work behind relaunching that. So again, it's about having the conversations around how we can make yoga more accessible to people with people yeah. in government. Um, yeah, I mean, that's an entire other... An entire yeah. other thing, yeah. <laughs> But there's an awful lot of research about that. And again, I touched on this in my trauma-informed training um, around the actual effects on your brain of meditation and the mindfulness practices, which doesn't have to be from asana. Like you said, it could just be, uh, oh, hello, cat. He's scratching my leg to get my attention, so I've had to pick him up. Oh, surprise, surprise. We always have an interjection from a cat towards the end. Um, yeah, it's about making sure that people get the benefits of these mindfulness practices, isn't it? And there's a lot of research that's around that at the moment, the effects of these practices on the brain, when you're triggering different chemicals in the body, tuning into different parts of your nervous system. I often think that when I talk about this stuff in my classes, my, my students think that I'm talking an amount of fluff. But um, it's a real scientifically proven thing that mindfulness actually makes your brain work differently, isn't it? Oh, completely. I mean, it rewires the brain and it can help. It can regrow the brain as well. Yeah. You know, it can reactivate parts of the brain that we've stopped using. And, and actually, like, as, we, as, as we decline through age, and I say that as someone who's just turned 50, you know, we, we used to think that the brain dies as we get older. But actually, by using practices like meditation and things like that and balancing practices for example we can actually help to to grow new bits of the brain so yeah. it, there's loads of science behind it and i think that's you know this i mean again there's been so many interesting conversations that have been had over the last couple of years if we go back to issues around yoga's roots and the traditional values of yoga you know i've heard criticism for example um from some quarters around the fact that organizations that are focused on the scientific side of yoga are getting recognition and that there is an argument that we are, why should it take a westernized scientific approach to yoga for it to be credible mm. rather than recognizing the traditional element of it and accepting the fact that, you know what, we've been doing this as a South Asian community for 2000 years, but now, now you're only going to believe it works because a Western scientist has told yeah, you to do yeah. so. And you know what I'd say about that is as someone who's involved in those conversations is that, I agree entirely with that perspective, but if, for example, we're going to get yoga onto the NHS, the only way we're going to get a doctor to sign off or a scientific body like on the NHS to agree to, to these practices being forming part of, of, of their what they're able to prescribe, we have to present them with the science. It's yeah. it has to be done. Um, yeah, so the research and the scientific work has to be done. Yeah. yeah. It's no good for us just to turn up and say, people have been doing this for 2000 years, take our word for it. It has yeah. to, it has to have some scientific evidence and research behind it. Um, yeah, exactly. So that's the next project. Next time I thought to you, you're going to have yoga on the NHS. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there are program, there are pilot schemes out there. It's been happening. We we did a as our Malo, we did a, a scheme two years ago, working with the Grenfell Tower survivors of the Grenfell Tower um, fire, mm -hmm. and we worked with the Grenfell Tower community on an NHS funded program 
to provide mm. weekly yoga to those those groups because again they were suffering PTSD and they were not only suffering PTSD they were kind of suffering that sudden impact PTSD that you might have found people from victims of conflict or survivors of conflict may have experienced yeah. it was a sudden event that left yeah. them traumatized and the impact that it had on that community and as well because much of the community around Grenfell Tower were a migrant community so again with experience of working with those groups we had an NHS funded program working with them for two years which had really really great results fantastic Lee it's been wonderful talking to you Dr Lee <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Just Lee is fine, honestly. <laughs> um, this is another conversation where we've we've pulled up so many subjects that we could just talk about for even longer or do round two. I think this happened as soon as I started this. I realised that the people I'm choosing have got much more to say than just a bite-sized conversation. But anyway. Yeah, I, if anyone knows me, I could talk all day. So yeah, we haven't even scratched the surface. <laughs> Lee, thank you so much for your insights and for your knowledge, okay? It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Um, if anybody wants to know any more about Fierce Calm, I will tag them, as usual, on the Instagram posts, and then you can give them a follow. You can find out about the new projects and the training. And for any yoga teachers out there, I can 100% do it. recommend doing some training, like the trauma-informed training that... Um, Lee's organization provides because it's always really good to have an insight into what anybody in your class might be facing and just have the ability to give them a bit of a um, different options in your classes so they can have some self-agency about what they do. So I highly recommend that training. Um, thank you, Lee. Thank you, Miss. It's been an absolute <laughs> pleasure. And for the listeners, I hope you've enjoyed it. I will see you next month. Goodbye.